0: Lord, would you please attend your word with your Holy Spirit? Would you please help me to be a means of grace, despite who I am, uh, in myself? And would you please, Lord, bless your people this morning? Lord, I even ask you to pierce our hearts with your truth. God, we cannot believe these things apart from your grace being operative in us and working in us through your Holy Spirit. We can't see these things unless you open our eyes to see them. Lord, I would pray that there would be life change today through your Holy Spirit working inside us. And I pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. All right, I know there's some folks out there still. Mike Sharp, where is he? Oh, wasn't Daryl out there? There's Mike. <laughs> okay, hand is here. All right. Um, I'm not trying to be hyper controlling. Um, it's just that I feel like I'm increasingly finding myself having the heart of a mom for our church, <laughs> and and I just, yeah, yeah. Uh, thank you. And and I, I I just so want the church to be blessed and and um cared for so i mean that really is what's going on in my heart there's all kinds of other issues in my heart but that's a real thing um so at the conclusion i'm going to start here we can start recording at the conclusion of the civil war one of the great ironies and tragedies of the post-war culture occurred it's a great tragedy and irony at the end of the civil war The North had won, the battle was done, slavery was abolished, but initially the majority of freed African American slaves lived the exact same life, the exact same way as they had lived during the war. Same masters, same plantations. For most of them, nothing changed. It it took a long time. The North had won. The battle was over. The Constitution with the 13th Amendment abolished slavery. But, but there they were, back on the plantations, serving these masters, these cruel masters. They were intimidated. They were haunted by a horrific past. They were devastated in the present by the face of their former master still living, who wanted them to live in fear and in ignorance. And they saw a future with, with little to no hope for resources of wealth or community. One historian, Shelby Foote, wrote of the freed slave. Of the freed slave, he wrote that now he was, he locked in a caste system of race etiquette, as rigid as any he had known in formal bondage could repeat with equal validity what an Alabama slave had said in 1864 when asked what he thought of the great emancipator whose proclamation went into effect that year. And the slave said, I don't know anything about Abraham Lincoln, he said, except that they say he set us free. And I don't know anything about that either. We've spent the last three weeks, this is a fourth week from Easter, seeing this picture of Jesus, the bondage breaker, that he's not only forgiven us by his blood, but he has, by his blood, purchased for us a new life. We have been, by virtue of our union with him in his death and resurrection, been spiritually separated from our old self, which died on the cross. We have been spiritually reborn with him from the grave. We have a new heart and his Holy Spirit at its center. And today, Paul, through the Holy Spirit, will appeal to us, will urge us, will exhort us, will command us, don't live as if you were still in slavish bondage to your old self. Don't live in slavish bondage to your old slave master. You will only reap death that way. Stand on the truth of what Jesus has done for you and in you. Live like you are new because you really are new and experience his life. These are the choices before us slavery and death or God is our master in life. This is not a choice God is neutral about. As we'll see, he pleads, he commands. But there it is before us, a choice. Let's read our text. We're going to go all the way back to the beginning of Romans that we covered in the, in the um in the Easter message and we're going to walk out from 13 out today. We won't cover everything, but I want you to hear it in its context. I want you to hear everything before the commandments that come at the in the in the part we'll cover today. I want you to hear the truth before it. So let's let's go back. Hey Brando, can you uh, refresh the plan? So there should be a new um, there should be a new part in there. Um, there sh- I'm sorry. There should be a new attachment. Does that make sense when I say refresh? Sorry, folks. Romans, um, it should start at verse 3. Okay, let's say this together. It's a lot, but we're going to say it together. Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Next slide. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin, for he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more, death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey its lusts. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace." What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you, who were once slaves of sin, Have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. your master we want to make sure that we repeat and emphasize all the truth that fuels all the commands and it's kind of summed up in 614 where paul says you're not under law but you're under grace This is sort of shorthand for everything that God has done for us in Christ Jesus through his death and resurrection and through us being united in his death and resurrection. And it's this truth, it's this truth if we said again and again, not your quiet times, not your pulling yourselves up by your own bootstraps and being moral in your own power, it's the truth of what Jesus did and who Jesus is that ensures this outcome that Paul says in 6.14 sin will not be your master. God's grace has set you free. It reigns over you. His blood has paid the full penalty, so you will never face God's eternal judgment for your sins. His grace reigns over you. He has declared you righteous in the court of his holiness on the basis of his son's blood. The judgment of God for your sin can no longer condemn you. God will no longer imprison you in deeper sin for your sin, which is a judicial punishment, a horrible judicial punishment that God brings on people who reject him. They become imprisoned in their own sin. But now God does not have that judicial punishment upon you. You only get mercy for your failures. You get his loving discipline for sure. But that is his mercy, not his judgment upon you. And more than this, you've been united with Christ in his death and his resurrection. He died and you died. Your old life on the cross was brought to death through his crucifixion. When he rose from the grave, you rose new. He brought a new heart into you and created a new life in you that's created in holiness. Not only that, God's very Holy Spirit lives in you to fill you with himself giving you God's desires, God's strength, so that you can love God and live a life of God. This is why Paul says it is impossible for the Christian to be truly ruled by sin. And in verse 14, Paul says we are dead to the law. We're no longer under the law's authority. Listen. We're no longer under the law's authority to condemn us because Jesus was condemned. We don't need to obey the law for our justification before God because Jesus has justified us already. In that sense, we are not under law. And then Paul asks a question. Well, then, if we're not under law, if we're justified by Jesus, if if he was condemned in our place, then why don't we just keep on sinning? Since the law, the moral commands of God have no ability to rule us, and they can't even make us better, why don't we just ignore the law? And Paul answers his own question in verse 16, which is point two. Embrace the tension of fighting to live who you already are. Embrace the tension of fighting to live out who you already are. 16, he says, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of, a ch- of, of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness. And then he ends with, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification, leading to holiness why would he even need to tell us to do that if we're new? I mean, have you ever thought about that? Have you ever wondered that? If I'm dead to sin and alive to God and filled with his Holy Spirit, why does he need to tell me to live like it? I can't answer this exhaustively, but here are some realities that might help. First of all, God has decided that this is the way it will be. He has decided that our salvation does not happen all at once. It happens over time. We say in here sometimes, we have been saved, we're being saved, we will be saved. That's the reality in the scriptures of our salvation experience. Sometimes our experience of salvation, for all of us, it is at times sudden and dramatic. When we first believe and are reborn as new creations, that is sudden and dramatic. In that moment, we often realize that there are desires that are completely gone to live apart from God. And there are new desires that are there almost automatically. I remember when I got saved, I wasn't even thinking about drinking. But I knew I didn't want to drink anymore, like get drunk anymore. I still have I still have a drink. I, but I knew that being drunk was no longer something I wanted or was no longer something I would do in my life as this habit that ruled me. I knew suddenly that not only... Did I want to save myself for marriage? But I could, I could do it, and I I, I couldn't. I wasn't thinking about sexual morality when I when I was thinking about Jesus dying for all my sins specifically. But He just did something dramatic and powerful in me in a moment. And sometimes we experience that that dramatic moment when we die and meet Christ in heaven. That will be dramatic. That will be in a moment. When we are raised and in resurrection bodies at his return, that will be dramatic. So there are these dramatic moments when black and white changes are part of our salvation journey. But other moments happen over longer periods of time in, in little choices, day by day. That is most of our experience in this life. And in most of our experience in this life, we experience salvation in these smaller changes, these gradual changes. Even though we're dead to sin, even though we are born again, even though we are spirit indwelt new creatures, we must still battle with indwelling sin that remains. It's not at the core of who we are anymore, but it is still part of our lives, still part of our minds. But here's the tension. God says we will win this battle. God says you have to fight a battle. And God says I've already won the battle and so you will win the battle. This is the tension. We must choose each day. Each day present yourself. Each day deny yourself. Take up your cross. We must choose each day to fight a battle that God has already decided in his and our favor. We are new creations who must choose to stand on that truth and choose to walk by the spirit and fight sin each day. And yet we are new creations who God says will win this battle because God has already decreed it and already won it for us. Why? Why did he set up this way? God has decided this is best for us, that this is most glorifying for him. It's the best way he decided to get to know him in this life, to understand our need for him, to grow in intimacy with him as we depend on his strength and find him saying yes again and again and again in our weakness finding him saying yes and yes again and again to helping us, to forgiving us, to cleansing us, to teaching us, talking to us, hearing us. I'm sure there are more reasons. I think one of the reasons is because he wants way more people in heaven than if he just fixed everything in a moment. In, In AD 33, when Jesus rose from the grave, whatever specific year that was. But the point is, though we will win, we're called to battle. And though we're called to battle, we will win. We will arrive at our destination and yet we have a walk to walk. And Paul tells us the consequences of fighting or not fighting are very, very weighty. They're very, very grave. And they hold out more tensions in Christian thought and living that we have to just say yes to. Point three, choose the right master. This is my longest point here. Paul puts it very graphic in verse 16. He says, if you present yourself To anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. We all understand this principle, if you think about it. When you give yourself over to either sin or to God, you do not come away from that moment, that engagement, the same. You don't maintain your independence from those two things, from either God or sin, You don't come away unaffected. You begin a relationship with that entity, whether it's sin or God, that deepens. I don't mean you start your relationship. I mean it deepens your relationship with that thing, whether it's sin or God. We see this even more in verse 19 where Paul says, for just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity, watch this, and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification, i.e. leading to more holiness, leading to growth in the God that's in you. Don't we all understand this? Practice habits. They infiltrate, they nest in, they grow in our hearts. When you spend, when I spend hours scrolling through the internet meaninglessly, purposefully, purposelessly, Again and again, ignoring your family, ignoring opportunities to love God and love those who need you, you come away not unaffected. That dopamine that runs through your brain, it will begin to conspire with sin to make it that much harder to stay away, right? Don't we know this? Eventually, it will call you to that screen minutes, minutes after you set it aside or even seconds. Seconds. We know this. When, when we engage in sexual immorality, you don't walk away the same. You walk away more in its grasp. That sexual gratification that you experience from what you just looked at or what you just did or engaged with, that pleasure that is meant to glue you to a spouse in oneness deeper, that God originally created for your good and for your joy in that relationship of marriage, it has been hijacked by your sinful choice and you have essentially begun a process of giving your hands to it to be cuffed so that it might take you away wherever it wants to go. And man, have I just seen that in so many years of ministry in men where this thing just grows and soon they're just handcuffed and it just takes them away where it wants them to go, upending their life, upending their marriage. When you say yes to God, when you turn from that anger that is internally screaming inside you in the midst of a real frustration with your child, with your spouse, with your coworker, and instead you raise your heart to him in faith, you cry out to him for help and are met, you will not walk away the same. You will deepen your relationship with him. As Ryan just told us, when you say yes to his leading, to talk with that person despite your fears because you can sense in your heart, this is my call, this is what I'm supposed to do today because you trust that he will give you power over your fears even with the tiniest mustard seed. You don't walk away the same. You will experience him more deeply. You will draw nearer to him, and it will affect your chores at work. It will affect what you want to watch that night. That person you helped, that conflict you resolved earlier in the day through prayer, through depending on God and seeing him work on a miracle, it doesn't stay there. It goes home with you to how you talk to your children now, or whether you want to spend time with God in the morning. Listen, whenever we engage him in, in meaningful prayer, like meaningful prayer, we give enough time to that. We give enough heart to that. In moments of real worship, listening to his voice in his word, singing songs that move our hearts, being touched. Whenever we're touched in our inner man by the Lord, we don't leave the same. We are moved deeper and closer into his gracious mastery over our lives. Paul puts it crudely here and he admits that. We move more and more into slavery to love. Slavery to goodness. Slavery to joy. So Paul speaks of our growth in Christ or our walking away from Christ in this crude term of slave master language. He says in verse 19, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. I'm, I'm giving you a crude analogy, but that's really apt. It doesn't mean that a life lived for God. It, is slavery in the sense that we think of it in, in the old South, or the way the Romans might have even thought of it? Jesus is gentle, he's humble, he's loving, he's patient, he's kind. And as we truly present ourselves to Him as we truly say to him, "Lord, my life today belongs to you, please lead me." He is that kind of master. He is gentle. He is humble. He is loving. He is patient and kind. And the more we give ourselves to him, immediately or eventually, we experience that character in him. That's how you experience his character, by opening your heart to him. Not by making negotiations and deals, by saying, you're you're my Lord today. And he moves in and shows you who your Lord is like, and he is beautiful. But the slavery mastery image, this crude metaphor Paul uses, it serves to portray the radicalness of what God calls us into. It is, it is an image that, that does speak to the all inness, the full inness of what God calls us to, that we consider ourselves truly ruled by God, that He truly is our master. It portrays the reality, too, of the alternative, that we can't give ourselves over a little bit to sin and expect to be treated as an independent agent who will only negotiate that much with sin. We won't be left in the same place. We will become more and more its slaves. And sin is not a gentle, humble, loving, patient, kind master. It is a cruel, lying, deceitful, treacherous murderer, Doug Moo says, one is never free from a master. Those non-Christians who think they are free are under an illusion created and sustained by Satan. The choice with which people are faced is not, "Should should I retain my freedom or give it up and submit to God? But should I serve sin or should I serve God? The freedom of the Christian is not the freedom to do what one wants, but freedom to obey God. And the Roman Christians had experienced this already in their own hearts. Paul says, thanks be to God, you were once slaves, but have become obedient from the heart. Obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you are committed. Having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Paul is saying, you heard Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You had put your hope in his blood as your only sure way to be forgiven. You had received the Holy Spirit and knew it was now your privilege and your empowerment and your call and your responsibility to follow Jesus as Lord and leave behind a life of sin. And they had found that Jesus had not left them to themselves, but had, Paul says, freed them. As never before they were able to follow him not by their power but his power it was a dramatic contrast from what they had experienced before verse 20 for you were slaves of sin you were free in regard to righteousness he's using free kind of ironically what kind of freedom was that what fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you were now ashamed the end of those things is death Paul says look back at your old life and what it produced death of course he has in view the death of relationships of meaning of loving god 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 blessed god inclusive ministry that 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 was ministry in the truth that wasn't part of their lives could they do good things yes but in everything they did, they were doing with the rejection of the one who had made them and created them and to whom all honor and glory was due. And that, those are the good deeds of the world today. All the good that the world does outside of a relationship with God does giving God essentially the finger. I don't need you. You don't deserve the highest honor and the greatest glory. Man is the measure of all things. And God is not indifferent to that. He's deeply offended by that idolatry. But there was also death in all kinds of other ways that we also see. There was death in marriages, death in relationships between parents and children, death in friendships. But Paul's also alluding to the ultimate end of judgment and condemnation this horrible separation from God's love that marks eternity for those who live their lives as slaves to sin. Verse 22, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end is eternal life. Paul says, now having turned to Jesus for mercy, believing him for mercy, committed by his power to follow him, the fruit of your life is the fruit of his spirit. What is the fruit of the lives of these people in Rome? He says their fruit was God's fruit. We know what that looks like. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Perfection, no. Perfection, no. Never perfection on this side. But Paul is saying more and more holiness, more and more love. Ultimately, Paul says the end of this is eternal life. That's what eternal life is because that's God's life. That's God's heart. Now, when we think about what Paul means by eternal life here, we can think John 17, 3. This is eternal life. Knowing God right now, it's not a place you get to in experience of Jesus Christ right now, Paul says. Knowing God, knowing Jesus, whom he has sent. But Paul's also talking about that final day. When our life, a life of fruit, confirms our profession, Jesus doesn't say to these people, I never knew you. Lord, we prophesied. We did all kinds of mighty works in your name. We evangelized. We preached. And Jesus says, I never knew you. Look at the fruit of your life. It was hypocrisy. No, Paul says, that's not your lives. Real fruit is coming out of your lives. Real love, real faithfulness, real kindness, real self-control. But then in verse 23, just so they don't misunderstand where this life of fruit comes from, Paul declares again the grace of God for salvation that he did at the beginning. He says, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. If, if we want to earn from God, Paul says, if you want to earn from God, if you want God to pay you and be in that kind of relationship with you, if that's, God, I'm going to be, when I, when I die, I'm pretty sure my good works will outweigh my bad works. Paul says, forget about it. If you want to earn from God, the only thing you can earn is judgment for your sin. If we want eternal life, a new life, a life of resurrection power in Jesus, it can only be by faith in him, depending on him for it and living in him through it. It is only a gift that can be received. And that is why it has to be by faith because faith expresses dependence on the giver. So a few application questions for you today. Do you know that you have a choice to make each day? Remember verse 13. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life. Present yourselves to God as instruments for God to use in righteousness. You are not under law. If you are in Christ Jesus, it cannot condemn you. Sin has no authority. It has no right to rule you. Paul says, you are not under law but under grace. Therefore, sin will have no dominion over you. But we cannot expect to experience this life of grace, this no dominion of sin over us, in this life or in the next, without responding to the command of God to choose, to offer ourselves to him again and again as his servants, as his instruments for his use, as he wishes and he wills. So are you doing that? Are you doing what Paul calls us to do here, the Holy Spirit through Paul calls us to do? Are you daily denying yourself, coming to Jesus and saying, Lord, I'm yours His yoke is easy. His burden is light. But it is a yoke. You must let him lead you. Even if that means, and often it will mean, crying out to him in desperate faith for power to follow, for the grace to let him lead you. Jesus is a gentle and humble Lord who will give you rest for your souls. But he is a Lord. He is a master. And if we want to experience true rest, we must not just call him Lord. We must fight to follow him as Lord. Question two, do you know that you can make that choice? I go back to Easter Sunday, what we read this morning. The impossibility of following Jesus each day has been destroyed by the death and resurrection of Christ. Your sin's ability to say to you, no, we will not follow Jesus, has been destroyed by Jesus Christ, not your quiet time, not your devotional life, not your Bible memory, not your good upbringing. It has been destroyed by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And God commands you to let that be your ground for presenting yourself for his use. To say to him, Lord, I cannot and could never do this on my own. But you, you have killed my old self on the cross You have raised me a new creation and you live in me. You have made it possible today in this moment and every moment today to follow you. And just to be sure, we are not talking about sinless perfection. The Bible makes that clear. But we are not talking about slavery to sin anymore. We're talking about the clear, clear, obvious end to slavery, to sin's dominion. We're talking about a new life, his fruit. Even imperfect, it's there. The night can be so dark. But that moon, I mean, there cannot be another star in the sky or light, it, but that moon, when it, it, it's only the tiniest part of this huge sky we see, but when that moon is lit up by that sun, it just, it glows like a jewel. It just can't be ignored. I mean, it, And so even in your struggle, that fruit of love, of joy, of peace, of patience, of kindness, of goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, it has its way of taking over the whole night sky. So yes, not perfection. But absolute change, for sure. Lastly, do you need bonds of slavery broken again today? What we've heard today tells us that if we offer ourselves over to sin, we become its slaves. Paul is saying this to Christians. He is saying to Christians, if you go on offering yourself habitually to sin, it will enslave you again. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin That means makes it a habit. Is a slave to sin. If you're someone who is bound to sin. Who is locked in. Who is essentially being conquered by it. There is no power. There is just bondage. On the authority of God's word. I proclaim to you. That Jesus has power to free you. Maybe you've been a believer for a long time. But you have been re-enslaved. And functionally speaking, it is your master right now. You have become death, deaf to God's promises of freedom. On the authority of God's word, if you will confess that sin, he will forgive you and cleanse you and re-free you. Maybe you're someone else. Maybe you thought that Christianity meant having Jesus as Savior but not needing to follow him as Lord. You didn't realize there was a call to submit to Christ your whole life as your master. Maybe you thought, I'll give him this, but I won't give him this. I'll give him dope, but I won't give him drunkenness. I'll give him fornication, but I won't give him pornography. I'll give him my money, but I won't give him my love for my wife or my selfishness at home to her. He can't touch that. That's too hard. That's not Lord. That's trade partner. We don't say Christ the trade partner. Christ the negotiator we say christ the lord maybe you walked in here this morning and you just you know you're not his but now you want out of slavery to sin you know it's leading you to death you want the freedom to follow him out of destruction and into hope here's what jesus said the slave this is john eight the slave does not remain in the house forever the slave to sin, Jesus says, does not remain in the house forever. He might be in the house for a time, but if that's who you are at your core, you, you won't remain under God's mercy in this life. There will come a judgment where you will be separated from God, from all of his goodness. Jesus says you cannot remain forever in God's graces and God's kindness to you, which keeps you alive on this earth. But then he says this, if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. He says, the slave does not remain in the house forever, the son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. The son has the authority to make you a son and a daughter. If you go on living in slavery to sin, there is no hope. But if you cry out to Jesus, if you trust him to free you, he will free you. He has that power. That is what he came to do. He is unstoppable. He does break every chain. He does tear every bond. So wherever you are in the picture today, his child who is straying, a person who just was ignorant of of his call over your life or you know you don't belong to him, wherever you are. Let's crowd together for a new freedom. And, and after we pray in a moment, come and talk with me. I, I would love, if you feel like you're any one of those people, I'll be over here for a little bit. I would love to talk to you. Walking in freedom, we can experience it in an instant, but to maintain that freedom and to keep going, we cannot do it on our own. God designed it to be a community project with his spirit at the center and his people all around you helping you. So I'm happy to talk with you. And if you know someone here who loves Jesus, they would love to talk with you about it as well. Let's pray.